You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Representative Hakeem Jeffries is chair of the House Democratic Caucus and was one of the managers in the first impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. This week, as the second impeachment trial begins, Jeffries joins the Post to discuss how the impeachment proceedings will unfold. He also gives an update on the COVID-19 relief bill negotiations. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today, our guest is Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who is chair of the House Democratic Caucus, was co-chair of the Biden transition team. We've got a lot of news to talk about today. Welcome, Congressman Jeffries, to Washington Post Live. Good afternoon, David. I uh, look forward to uh, being with you. Thanks for having me on. Great. Uh, it's good to have you. So let's uh, s- start with the impeachment trial that begins tomorrow in the, in the Senate. You were one of the House managers in the impeachment trial a year ago that ultimately uh, resulted uh, in the uh, acquittal, non-conviction uh, of President Trump. I'm wondering what advice you have today for the House managers as they're about to begin to present their case so as to get a a different outcome? Well, they certainly are two different cases. We believed uh, that we did present a mountain of evidence and clear and convincing evidence that Donald Trump corruptly abused his power by pressuring a foreign government, Ukraine, to target an American citizen, Joe Biden, as part of then-President Trump's efforts to interfere with the 2020 election. Uh, But the senators on the Republican side of the aisle, with the exception, notable exception of Mitt Romney, uh, saw fit to acquit Donald Trump. Some even suggested that he would learn his lesson. Uh, Many of us believe that the only lesson he learned is that he could shoot holes uh, in the Constitution from Pennsylvania Avenue and nobody would care and get away with it. And now we find ourselves dealing with accountability in connection with a violent attack on the Capitol and an insurrection that many of us believe was incited by the reckless actions of Donald Trump. Now, this is a straightforward case in my view, and in my communications with the impeachment managers, I simply have said, lay out the facts in a compelling way, lay out the law in a compelling and straightforward way, lay out the constitutional implications of why accountability is important in this particular situation in a compelling way and let the chips fall where they may, both in terms of the Senate and in terms of the American people. And David, I would just say that one of the things that's interesting about being an impeachment manager, and it was a great honor, is that there are two audiences. Uh, Yes, you have to speak to the Senate sitting as a court of impeachment, but at the same time, be cognizant uh, that you are also talking to the American people. And I think our House impeachment managers in the second trial are going to do a tremendous job in focusing on both. So, Mr. Congressman, let me ask you a bit about uh, President Trump, former President Trump's defense. Bruce Castor, who's one of his lawyers, said on Fox News that he's been reviewing video footage of Uh, violent protests last year uh, at federal 
courthouses and other other buildings in Portland and elsewhere, and that he plans to introduce that video evidence uh, as part of the defense uh, of former President Trump. What's your reaction to the uh, appropriateness of, of that uh, evidence being submitted? And how do you think House uh, impeachment ma managers to respond should respond to what will, I assume, be an argument? We didn't start the violent protests. Here's evidence of them taking place. Yeah, it's wildly inappropriate, sad, empathetic, and I think it's evidence of the fact that Donald Trump and his lawyers don't really have any good defense on the merits with respect to the fact that the former president did actually incite a violent insurrection. Donald Trump summoned the mob to Washington, D.C. He then incited the mob with his words. I believe that during his remarks, he used the word fight 15 or 16 times. And then he directed the mob to march on the Capitol. And as a result of the events that followed, blood was spilled, Officer Sicknick was killed, two additional officers subsequently are no longer with us. More than 140 officers have suffered serious injuries, uh, mostly head and brain trauma, as I understand it. One officer has lost three fingers. Another officer uh, is close to losing sight in at least one eye. And of course, it was all part of an attempt to stop the Congress from certifying the election of Joe Biden and undertaking and facilitating the peaceful transfer of power. And so I think those are the facts. And I believe the impeachment managers will stick to the facts. Now, when all else fails and you don't have a defense on the merits, play the race card is apparently the strategy of Donald Trump and his lawyers. Now, this should be no surprise, David, because this is a president who has fanned the flames of racial hatred throughout the duration of his presidency, prior to his presidency as a candidate and also as a private citizen. The record is flush uh, with evidence of this, including the fact that Donald Trump perpetrated the racist lie for five years that Barack Obama was not born in the United States of America as part of an effort to delegitimize America's first black president. And he then rode that lie into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It should not surprise us uh, that he wants to create some kind of false equivalence uh, by raising the specter of the Black Lives Matter movement as some type of fake and phony and false defense. So we'll come back to the specifics of former President Trump's defense in a moment. But I want to ask this question a slightly different way. I'm curious whether you support having a domestic terrorism law. A lot of people, police chiefs, others that I've spoken to say, we need a law like like this. We don't have anything that's that's specific. Do you think that's a good idea? And should that law simply refer to violent behavior uh, in support of a political cause, not distinguish between ide ideologists, ideologists just say violent behavior uh, in support of, of your cause is going to be illegal under this new statute. Is that a good idea? Well, I think it's an idea that's worthy of serious exploration before uh, the Congress. And I believe the relevant committees of jurisdiction 
uh, which would be the House Judiciary Committee, as well as the House Homeland Security Committee uh, and the companion committees in the Senate will and should take a close look at how best to proceed. I also think that there should be no distinction in terms of the statute, if one in fact is drafted and enacted into law as it relates to political violence. Violence in any form is problematic and has no place in our democracy, whether it comes from the hard right or the hard left or at any point in between. That said, the FBI uh, and the intelligence officials and others have made clear that the most significant threat to the homeland in terms of domestic terrorist type of activity comes from hard right white supremacy type groups and militias who are bent on enacting their ideology using violent means. And many of these groups were apparently involved in the January 6th insurrection. But the FBI and others like Chairman Benny Thompson of the Homeland Security uh, Committee have been warning about the rising threat of violent white supremacy for years. Now is the time for us to take that seriously in terms of action and resources uh, in preventing it from being able to take the cancerous form that we saw on January 6th. So that's a helpful answer. Uh, thank you. Uh, let me ask you about another part of the former president's defense. Uh, his lawyers have claimed that the trial that will begin tomorrow is theatrical because President Trump has already left office. He's in Mar-a-Lago. It's over. Uh, and they argue not only is this uh, theatrical, maybe it's unconstitutional because he's left, left office. What is your response? What should be the response of the House impeachment managers to that argument? Well, I think the House impeachment managers will forcefully confront that argument, as I understand it, tomorrow, uh, where this question is likely to be debated in terms of the constitutionality of a Senate impeachment trial of a former president. Several things I think will be important here in combating this issue head on. First, former president was impeached while he was the current president. And he was impeached for conduct that occurred as president of the United States, starting with the big lie that he perpetrated, uh, that the election was actually stolen from Donald Trump. He's the rightful winner, and Joe Biden should not have been seated as the 46th president of the United States of America, which is the reason why the mob violently attacked the Capitol to stop us from certifying the election. He bears responsibility for that. And so do, by the way, some of the sycophants of Trumpism in the House and the Senate, uh, who also perpetrated uh, that big lie right along with him. A president has to be held accountable for violations of the Constitution, whether it occurs on day one or on the final day of his or her presidency. Because if you can't hold a president accountable for activity that has occurred, even in the final few weeks of a particular president's term, then it unleashes the possibility that you can have someone try to artificially 
halt the peaceful transfer of power as occurred in this particular case because they would know from this precedent that there's no way to hold them accountable. And I think it's reasonable to point out that by its very definition, an insurrection occurs at the end of someone's term because the election would have taken place. You, as the president, would have lost. And then you engage in a weeks-long or months-long effort to try to halt the certification of the actual winner, which is what occurred in this particular instance, to try to gain a second term against the will of the voters. Who knew that it would actually take the form of a violent and seditious insurrection and attack on the Capitol, uh, but it did. And so there's gotta be an ability to hold uh, a particular president who finds himself in that situation accountable, which is exactly why we know the trial is gonna proceed. There are at least 55 votes to allow it to proceed. And I think um, it's, 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 it's a phony argument that's being advanced because some Senate Republicans just don't want to have to deal with the merits of this case because they know the evidence is so damaging against former President Trump. There, there is an argument, uh, Mr. Congressman, I'm sure you've, you've heard it, that uh, given that at this point, it looks unlikely that there'll be the two thirds majority necessary for conviction, that the, the trial, uh, while seeking to hold President Trump accountable for these actions, might not have the desired effect uh, and might not have the effect that some people most passionately want, which is to ban him from holding future office. What do you think about the possibility before there's a final vote of introducing a motion to invoke the 14th Amendment and its provisions that anyone who commits sedition uh, is unable to hold future federal office. Would, would that be a plausible alternative that would avoid uh, acquittal on, the, on these very serious charges, but, but accomplish the, the end that many people desire? In my view, that's not a plausible alternative in the midst of uh, an impeachment trial. The process has started uh, and Donald Trump was impeached for inciting a violent insurrection in a bipartisan way with the most bipartisan impeachment of a president in American history. And so if there ever was a time to be able to proceed to an impeachment trial, it's actually right now with strong support coming out of uh, the Republican House conference in addition to unanimous support uh, from Democrats who decided to proceed. And many senators know better uh, Mitch McConnell and others have made critical statements as it relates to the president's responsibility here. And so I believe that when you look at the five Republicans who supported uh, the notion that it is constitutional to proceed uh, with a impeachment trial of a former president, that is, that's, the, that's the floor. That's not the ceiling. Uh, I believe that there are several other Republicans uh, who have kept an open mind, and if they follow the facts, apply the law, are guided by the Constitution, 
then they may see themselves toward conviction. Now, at the end of the trial, we can look into other accountability measures as it relates to the behavior of Donald Trump because it's been so egregious, it's so unprecedented, and it strikes at the very heart of our democracy. The framers didn't want a king. They didn't want a dictator. Uh, they didn't want a monarchy. They certainly didn't want an autocrat. Uh, they wanted a democratic republic and Donald Trump's behavior, both in, in the context of the first impeachment, his corrupt abuse of power related to the 2020 election, and certainly as it relates to this current impeachment deserves accountability. That's the measure uh, that James Madison and Ben Franklin and others saw fit to include in the Constitution. They didn't put a date stamp on it. They didn't explicitly say uh, that it only applies to current presidents, not former presidents. And the framers of the Constitution were many things. They were not bashful and incapable of articulation. And so I think we should go forward and let's see what happens when the Senate deliberates and if there are additional steps that need to be taken, including contemplating uh, a 14th Amendment resolution, Section 3, uh, which talks about insurrection and sedition and providing aid and comfort thereto, uh, then let's cross that bridge when we get to it. That's, that's a, a helpful timeline. I have one more question related to impeachment, then I want to turn to some of the, the big uh, economic and social issues uh, facing us. President Biden has been careful not to say anything really about impeachment, not to give his view about whether the, the Senate should convict a, the former president or not. Are you comfortable with the stance that he's taken? Uh, yes, I'm very comfortable with the stance uh, that he has taken. Joe Biden, of course, uh, spent decades in the United States Senate. He respects senatorial prerogative. He knows that the Senate is sitting in a court of impeachment. Uh, and rather than weigh in one way or the other, he hasn't uh, been able to review the facts and the law and the Constitution uh, because the, the case hasn't been presented yet. Uh, and so I think it would be inappropriate. Uh, as he's concluded, he's correct. Uh, to put his thumb on the scale at this particular point in time uh, until the trial has actually unfolded. So I'm very comfortable with the position that he's taken. And I think that given the fact that we're in the midst of a once in a century deadly pandemic, he's correctly concluded uh, that his focus should be on providing comprehensive, compassionate, and continuing relief uh, with respect to dealing with the COVID-19 crisis that he inherited, in part because his predecessor's response was an unmitigated disaster. Let's turn now to the uh, $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief package. The Senate on Friday began to move toward taking action uh, with a, a 51 vote uh, majority showing uh, its willingness to use a reconciliation type process uh, to get the outcome. President Biden had signaled since the beginning of these discussions that he was interested in working with Republicans on a bipartisan package. He suggested that he'd be willing to consider a, a smaller, uh, tar more targeted stimulus plan as, as part of that. 
Uh, Democrats so far have not seemed uh, eager to, to support that. Uh, I want to ask you whether you think there's a price, as President Biden seems to feel that there is, for not having a, a bipartisan bill. Well, in my view, the bill has strong bipartisan support across the country in terms of the American Rescue Plan and what President Biden has laid out. The American Rescue Plan has the support, as I understand it, uh, of the Chamber of Commerce. That's a right-leaning organization. Uh, the Business Roundtable, that's a right-leaning organization. Republican governors and mayors and county executives throughout the country have, in various ways, expressed support for the $1.9 trillion plan. So it has bipartisan support across the country in ways that are incredibly impressive uh, because I think many of these organizations and individual Republican office holders outside of the Congress recognize uh, that that a, a once in a century pandemic requires a big, bold, once in a century congressional response. And, and so that's important in terms of setting the framework. Now, it remains to be seen whether my colleagues on the other side of the aisle in both the House and the Senate are gonna see fit to support the plan. As Speaker Pelosi has consistently indicated we want to find common ground with the other side, but we're not going to tolerate obstructionism for the sake of obstructionism. Because that, in fact, is what we saw during the early days of the Obama administration, where there was really no good faith effort by Republicans to work with him either on the recovery plan uh, and then subsequently the Affordable Care Act, even though Barack Obama worked closely with Republican senators and House members to try to create a process by which there was meaningful input from them. But at the end of the day, they chose to go down a different route. Hopefully, uh, they won't do that in this particular case and play politics with a pandemic. But what we're starting to see is that because we now have a Democratic president, all of a sudden, many of my Republican colleagues have apparently remembered that they're supposed to be the party of so-called fiscal responsibility. Where were they when during President Trump's first year, they jammed a $2 trillion GOP tax scam down the throats of the American people, where 83% of the benefits went to the wealthiest 1% as part of an effort to support the lifestyles of the rich and shameless with no valid economic reason to do so at the time and without a single Democratic vote because they used the process of reconciliation. And so if my Republican colleagues can use reconciliation in connection with the GOP tax scam of all things that they didn't even run on in the 2018 midterm elections because it was so wildly unpopular, then certainly we can contemplate using reconciliation as a pathway to getting meaningful COVID-19 relief done while still working to find common ground and hoping uh, that there will be bipartisan support for this legislative effort. Uh, fair point about, about the late uh, realization of the importance of, of fiscal responsibility by Republicans. 
my question is whether there's still some room left for, for bargaining and negotiation. Republicans are not the only ones, as you know, uh, Mr. Congressman, who, who wonder if the $1.9 trillion on top of an earlier $9 trillion um, is, is, is um, more to pump into the economy than, than is, is necessary for immediate relief. And that people also ask Republicans and Democrats alike about the effects of this on our, on our national uh, debt. Uh, so again, is there still some time to, to, to work on a package in which Democrats try to respond to Republican concerns and there's something we can call honestly bipartisan? Uh, yes, I believe there is, and that process is ongoing uh, this week and will begin in a meaningful way. Multiple committees are going to be conducting uh, markups to uh, fill in different aspects of the COVID-19 relief bill based on the framework uh, that was passed by the House and the Senate on Friday. And that's a process that is collaborative, where Democratic members and Republican members will have the opportunity to raise ideas, to debate those ideas, and to see if consensus could be found uh, in the given areas of committee jurisdiction. So that will happen before the Ways and Means Committee, I believe the Appropriations Committee, the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, the Education and Labor Committee, uh, and several other committees, those probably being the most significant small business as well, uh, in terms of the legislative process of giving everyone, every member, uh, every Democrat and every Republican on those committees, the opportunity to share ideas about how to make this relief bill the best that it can possibly be. Uh, once that's done, uh, then there's another process before the Rules Committee uh, where there's an additional opportunity for amendments to be offered, both by Democrats and of course by uh, Republicans. And I'm Assuming there's also high-level negotiations that will continue to occur, uh, led by President Biden in communicating with Democrats and Republicans in both the House and the Senate. And so uh, we took a first step last week to be able to be prepared to use the reconciliation process to meet the needs of the American people by mid-March when the current COVID-19 relief package expires in many different areas, including as it relates to the unemployment insurance uh, benefit and enhancement that is so critical with millions of Americans still unemployed. And so I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that the process over the next few weeks will yield Republican support, but in many ways, uh, it's on my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to behave in good faith. I appreciate your unpacking how the leadership is, is thinking about this. That's, that's more detail and clarity than, 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 than I've been aware of. Let me ask you one more a question about, about the package. President Biden said in his, uh, his interviews with CBS uh, tied to the Super Bowl that uh, uh, on the question of the $15 min minimum wage, which he strongly supports, he said, I put it in, but I don't think it's going to survive. Do you agree with him? Well, far be it from me to predict what is going to happen in the Senate, uh, let alone what's going to happen in terms of a ruling by the Senate parliamentarian. And so, you know, let's see uh, what occurs in the context of the Byrd rule, as I understand it, sets forth a variety of different categories whereby 
items as part of a budget reconciliation process may or may not be viewed as within the scope of what's permissible. Uh, I do believe that on the merits, uh, Congress in one way, shape or form has to consider uh, the $15 minimum wage increase. The current minimum wage at the federal level is $7.25. That is unconscionable because people working at that level are actually still in poverty if they have a family of four. That makes zero sense in America, so I, the wealthiest country in the history of the world. I, I hear you saying it's it got to be done in some way, shape, or form, but that leaves open whether it will be done in this first slice of the uh, COVID uh, relief plan. Let, let me, yes, let me be clear, David. I, I support yeah. it being done yeah. in this COVID relief plan, but ultimately the determination rests with the Senate parliamentarian and the Senate in terms of the reconciliation process. Fair enough. I want to ask you a final question. This is not top of the news, but it's top of mind for uh, anyone who cares about the issues of racial justice and, and, and where the country's going. You've been a longtime advocate for criminal justice reform. And I want to ask you, as you look toward this new Congress, what's on your agenda? What new ideas do you have uh, for ways to make our, our criminal justice system fairer, more equitable, to deliver on the promise of racial justice for all Americans? Well, thank you so much for asking that question. This is an incredibly important area uh, that I know will be a priority of the Biden administration, the president, as well as Vice President Harris uh, have indicated that over the last several months and continue uh, to make clear through their administration that this is something that we need to look at. And the good news is that criminal justice reform is incredibly bipartisan. We were able to put together a coalition connected to the First Step Act to strike an initial blow against mass incarceration in the United States of America, both in the context of prison reform and increasing the likelihood that currently incarcerated individuals upon release can successfully re-enter society. That's good for them, that's good for their families, the communities they return to, and it's good for the taxpayer by dramatically reducing recidivism. And also with respect to sentencing reform, where we took some steps in the First Step Act to uh, improve the fairness and equity and justice of our laws many of which were connected to the failed war on drugs. But we called it a first step for a reason because it was just foundational. And so I'm looking forward to working closely with the Biden administration, Democrats and Republicans in both the House and the Senate, and bringing back the same coalition uh, that supported the First Step Act, which included the NAACP, as well as the Koch brothers, the ACLU, as well as the Heritage Foundation, uh, advocates on the left and advocates on the right, folks like Rover Norquist and others who supported the First Step Back in criminal justice reform, to take a look at the damage that was done by the 94 crime bill, which reached into the states, and now in part as a result uh, of the 94 crime bill and other things that went too far. Uh, there are now 2.2 million people incarcerated in America, more than any other nation in the world, disproportionately Black and Latino. Uh, that is a stain on our democracy, and we need to tackle it with the fierce urgency of now. 
And thankfully, there's a bipartisan coalition that exists, I believe, to do just that. Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, the chair of the House Democratic Caucus, thank you for giving us a, a real look inside how the, the House leadership is looking at all these issues ahead. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So we have a full afternoon. Uh, my colleague Karen Tumulty will interview Senator Tim Kaine at 2.30. And at 3.30, my colleague Heather Long will interview Raphael Bostic, who is president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Stay with us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.